0: Revelation. Um, you can turn to Revelation 13 right now. We've been in this book. It's the last book of your Bible. <clears throat> While you're turning there, uh, let me just kind of remind everybody our approach to this book. We're approaching Revelation just like we do every other book of the Bible. We are looking at this text in light of the context, the broader context of Scripture. ...and its historical cultural context. Um, We've already realized that Revelation is a letter. It's a letter that's written to seven specific churches in Asia Minor... ...for a very specific purpose. Uh, These seven churches are about to undergo an ordeal... ...as John, the author of this letter, describes it. Um, John, who's a disciple of Jesus, is the pastor over Asia Minor. He gets a vision from Jesus, who then in turn, he writes this vision down. He sends it to the seven angels, the seven pastors of these seven churches, to pastor them. To explain why this is happening, what's happening as they go through this ordeal. So we learn, I, I wanna do a little review this morning. Um, chapter four begins with the whole vision. And probably the most comforting reality there is. God sitting on his throne and the entire cosmos gathered around it, worshiping him. That's how the vision begins. Chapter 5 then zooms in to the scroll that is in God's hand. And the scroll represents uh, the end or the purpose to which our world is moving. It's cosmic. It's the answer to the prayer, the Lord's prayer. When we pray, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Uh, that's what the scroll is. It's, it's, It's an answer to that. It's... God bringing that to reality. Um, it's, it's God judging the earth. And God judging the earth isn't just God punishing, but it's this Hebrew phrase, olam, which means to repair or to fix the whole. That's God judging the earth, and that's the purposes to which everything is moving. He's going to repair the, the whole world. And we saw that no one, though, John starts to weep because no one can, can open the scroll. But then there is one standing next to the throne, the Christ, who John describes as the Lamb. And uh, the Bible has already let us know that our world is infected with the curse of sin. And it infects everything, uh, bringing about decay and death. Well, the lamb is the cure. And the lamb is the one who triumphs. And he doesn't do it the Caesar way. He does it God's way. And that's why he's called a lamb who is slaughtered. Um, He is the one who's worthy to open the scroll to unleash God's judgment. And then the next uh, things that we saw were, were... these three series of seven judgments of god which will be unleashed on the earth the seven seals the seven trumpets and then later the seven bowls um in revelation 6 through 11 we looked at the first two sets of these seven of this sevenfold judgment the seven seals the seven trumpets uh we noticed that these two series of judgments are essentially the same judgment but just seen from a different viewpoint But the shocker for me at least in studying this is that this is God's judgment on his people, Israel. And it shouldn't have shocked me or it shouldn't have shocked us um, because the prophets repeatedly speak of this. Even Jesus uh, talks about it. He says some of you will not even see death until this happens. In fact, it's a judgment that both John and Jesus say will include the unimaginable, the unthinkable, that God's house would be destroyed. And I want you to know that that was not just unthinkable to the Jews of the first century, but it was just as unthinkable to the Christians because the temple was their headquarters as well. And so that requires an explanation, and John gives it. And I love then how Revelation is going to end with a new Jerusalem and a new temple that's going to fill the whole earth. John uses all the same uh, imagery of the prophets. He uses the imagery of the four horsemen, which represent conquest, warfare, famine, death. He uses the imagery of locusts, which the um, prophets use as well to talk about the pagan armies that, will, that would come in hordes. And he uses all of this to say, Rome's coming. Rome is God's vehicle of judgment on Israel. Just like Rome is, was the vehicle that crucified Jesus. And then what's amazing is that when you actually read the history books and align this with, with, with history, the Romans actually do come in 66 AD and destroy Jerusalem, burn the temple to the ground, um, and all of that took the 42 months that Revelation speaks of. Now something, something that I was just thinking about this week in regards to this prophecy about the temple. If you remember the last week of Jesus' life, it's, it, it's really this clash of two temples. It's the bricks and mortar temple and it's this walking temple, Jesus. And it's a clash of these two heavyweights. And Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. And then speaks about how the bricks and mortar temple is going to be destroyed. And then he says, But I am the true temple. And it's the temple leader that the temple leadership that eventually kills Jesus. But who wins this clash of temples? Because now we're looking at 40 years after that clash, and you ask which temple is still standing? And it's the true temple, Christ. And then when I think about 40, which in the Bible is the number that symbolizes testing and preparation, it's like God gave the Jews 40 years to switch from the bricks and mortar temple to the true temple, Christ. So now we're switching uh, from God's judgment on Israel, and now in chapter 13, we're gonna start looking at God's judgment on, on, on pagan Rome, So if you can stand, we like to stand for the reading of God's word. Revelation 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, and had the feet of those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power on his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. And the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? And the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. For it opened its mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name and his temple and those who live in heaven. And it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. The lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with this sword they will be killed. This calls for perseverance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. And then I saw a second beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast... ...on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of the people. And because of the signs it was given, power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceive the inhabitants of the earth. And it ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived... And the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of man. And that number is 666. This is God's word. You can be seated. Come on, who wants to preach this this morning? (laughs) (laughs) Like a good epic... John is providing a flashback scene actually in chapter 12, the chapter preceding the one obviously that we just read. Um, I'll give you a good example of a good flashback scene if you know Lord of the Rings at all. uh, Of course, Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Um, The first two movies are about this ring of power and the need for this ring to be destroyed. But really, after watching even the first two movies you see the massive power of this ring and, 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 and the power that it holds over uh, the individuals who come in contact with it and the, and the cosmic power it has for evil. But you really don't know how it got that power or why it has such power until you come to movie three and it starts with this wonderful flashback scene that goes all the way back to the beginning to explain how the ring of power came to be how it gets married to this dark creature named Gollum, and, and then how it holds such massive power to bring evil upon the whole earth. And that's what chapter 12 is, is doing. It's, it's a flashback scene that takes us all the way back to the beginning. Because as this first century audience is going to look at what's in 13... and and this beast and think about Rome and and, and the empire and and the emperors, uh, John needs, or God through John needs to say, wait a second, just like Paul says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's deeper than that. And it goes all the way back to the beginning to a snake whom John calls a dragon. And just like God said, That there is going to be enmity between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the snake. And they're going to be at war. And so now we come to chapter 13. And John speaks of this flesh and blood reality And he uses the symbol of of that of a beast. In fact, there are two beasts in chapter 13. Verse 1, you have the beast that comes out of the sea. And then verse 11, you have the beast that comes out of the earth. So here's the question. Who or what is this infamous beast? And see, this is where commentators so want to just run that thing to all these crazy connections to thing and to things in our world without first doing the work of understanding that Revelation, this whole book, meant something to its original audience. What did it mean to them? Well, first I want us to notice, when you look at verse 1 in this description of the beast, and if you remember the description of the dragon, that the beast resembles the dragon. In chapter 12, the dragon has seven heads and ten horns, and this beast has ten heads and seven horns. More importantly, the fact that the beast comes out of the sea. Remember, uh, John the Jew, with his Hebraic worldview, uh, the sea in their worldview is the abyss. And it's, it's the home to the dragon, And to the demonic forces of our world. So the fact that the beast comes out of the sea, it's it's like the sea and the dragon give birth to the beast. The beast is the dragon's offspring. And we need to see that. And also, just to keep us from constantly trying to make um, all these crazy interpretations uh, to our world today, Um, If we would just apply Bible 101 to this, because I don't know if you know this, but Revelation is the most Hebraic New Testament book we have. And what I mean by that is this. In fact, uh, D.A. Carson and Beale have this book called The New Testament Use of the Old Testament. It's a very helpful book for for pastors like me who want to make these connections. And uh, they say that there are 635 either direct quotes or allusions or echoes in Revelation that connect to the Old Testament. There is no other New Testament book that even comes close to that. So, in light of that, when we read this about the beast, our first question should be well, where is this in the Old Testament? And where is it? Do we know? Good, you might learn something. <laughs> Daniel 7, which is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. Remember, Daniel is their revelation, at least the second half of it. And we always go to that part in Daniel 7 where it says, "In one like a son of man, who's given authority, total authority over all kings, All peoples, and he shall have this authority forever and ever. That's why Jesus said, Call himself the Son of Man. But the first half of Daniel 7 speaks of four beasts that come out of the sea a lion, a bear, and a leopard. And then a fourth that's more terrible than the others that has ten horns. And that is exactly how John describes the beast in Revelation. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and one more terrible than the others with ten horns. Now scholars today, and even scholars that go all the way back to the first century, are all pretty much in agreement about these four beasts. That these four beasts represent four great empires... And I'm sorry for this really cheesy PowerPoint that I'm going to show you right now. Um, I'm only using it. I did not make that, okay? (laughs) But just so you can see it with your eyes. um, In fact, Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 uh, are consistent. But sticking with the Daniel 7 part, the lion in Daniel 7... uh, represents the Babylonian Empire, the bear, the Persian Empire, the leopard, Alexander the Great, and the Greek Empire, and one still greater than that with ten horns is the Roman Empire. These are the four beasts that come up out of the sea. Now with John, John's vision, this order is reversed because Daniel is looking forward to these events, but John is looking backwards. Backwards which is another clue that we shouldn't be always looking forward when we read Revelation, but we should be also be looking backwards. Also, uh, the difference between Daniel 7 and what we just read in Revelation 13 is Daniel's four beasts have now been rolled into one beast, but this one beast maintains all the characteristics of Daniel's four beasts. It's like the, the, the beast swallowed, uh, the beast pre preceding it, and is now the embodiment of all four beasts. Other features of this beast, verse 1 says it has seven heads and ten horns. Horns is a symbol of authority, so this beast has world authority. The seven heads represent the seven kings, or the seven emperors, the seven Caesars, and We can make this connection to the Caesars of Rome because when you go to Revelation 17, verse 9, um, it interprets the seven heads of this beast and says, um, these seven heads sit on the seven hills. Now, if I say Wrigley to you, you say, what? Cubs, maybe, but you could also say Chicago, right? If I say... Statue of Liberty, you say? If I say Seven Hills, every person in the Roman Empire knew that Seven Hills was a reference to Rome. Even the coins of Caesar oftentimes depicted him uh, sitting on the Seven Hills of Rome. And I'm gonna even suggest it's more specific than just the seven, than the emperors in Rome But I'm going to suggest that it's the emperors, the seven emperors, beginning with Nero, going all the way way through Domitian. Because look at our text. Look at how the seven heads of this beast are described in verse 6. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name, and his dwelling place, and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people, to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. That's quite a description. Now this is what I know about the emperors, uh, Nero through Domitian. Not only did they have world authority... Not only did they demand and insist upon being worshiped as Lord and God, but these seven emperors declared war on God's people. In fact, John tells us the beast has a number in verse 18. It says, For it is the number, the number of the beast is the number of man, and that number is six, six, six. now six in the Bible is the number of man, as John tells us, because man was made on the sixth day. Uh, six is also the number of incompletion, uh, because seven in the Jew- Jewish uh, worldview is the number of completion seven is is, is, is god 's day um, god is is perfection, and therefore. Uh, six being less than a seven, um, not only is the number of incompletion, but it's also the number for evil. And so what I want us to see here is we don't have just a doubling, six, six, which is how the Hebrew would say not only is this evil, uh, but when you do six, six, it's, it's, it's holy or completely evil. But he says, no, this is a six, six, six. A tripling. And the only other tripling in the Bible that I know of is holy, holy, holy. And it is the antithesis to holy, holy, holy. It is the entity that stands against the Holy One in every way. Now, this is where many scholars see John moving from talking about the generic to the specific, where he's not just talking generically about the emperors, but he actually has a specific emperor in mind. Now, if you don't know this, numbers to a Jew are more than quantities. They, they use numbers symbolically uh, because uh, their numbers come from their alphabet. Aleph is one, Beit is two. And so what they like to do is they actually like to spell things out with numbers. Caesar Nero, which is what was put on all of the coins during the reign of, 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 of Nero in Hebrew, adds up to 666. Now, if that isn't enough, brace yourself, Grand Rapids, uh, because <laughs> later manuscripts change the number from 666 to 616. <laughs> um... Yeah, we could have fun with that interpretation, couldn't we? <laughs> the reason it switched from 666 to 616 is because the lingua franca of that day is Latin and Nero and Latin is 616. They're trying to connect it to Nero. Now, here's the question then why would Emperor Nero be associated with the beast? Well, Roman historian Philip Schaff writes that Nero was a demon in human shape. Even some of his contemporaries called him beast. Nero uh, was off to such a great start. He he was trained by the Roman philosopher Cicero to bring in this this great golden age uh, to Rome, and instead he became the most vile and vicious human being maybe the world has ever seen. Besides regularly participating in the Roman sexual practices of that day, things like orgy and the such, he also regularly raped people, tortured them, On one occasion, he castrated a boy named Sporus and tried to personally make him a woman and then had an elaborate ceremony in which he made Sporus his wife. One of his favorite activities was to dress up in animal skins. In all of this, and I can't even describe really what he would do other than that he would literally gouge out body parts. Also, he would uh, dress up um, with his friends like gangsters and go out into the Roman city and find an innocent or group of innocents and just beat them up to death. He killed, clubbed his own mother to death. He killed his brother. He killed many of his relatives. He killed and tortured thousands of people. Anyone who was seen as a threat, he had them put to death, usually death by torture. He was a megalomaniac in every sense of that word. Um, He loved Roman opera, insisted that he was good enough to perform in in the best operas of that day. And uh, anyone who didn't listen well enough to him or speak well enough, he put them to death, including one senator. He, he, he uh, participated in the Olympics as a charioteer. Um, in fact, I, I don't know why I find this a little bit humorous, but he actually fell out of his chariot, but still won, uh, because everybody was afraid to win. <laughs> he wanted to build a palace in the heart of Rome That was just monstrous, gigantic. But because the heart of Rome was neighborhoods where where common people lived, he he didn't have space for it, so he set Rome to fire. And after the fire burned uh, Rome, he put... Let me just show you how how, how scholars have reconstructed his palace with, with this lake and... Um, I, mean, I mean, it's mammoth. And then if you keep looking in the back, you see this huge colossus that Rome, all Romans could see of Nero himself. Now, the next emperor, Vespasian, because the Romans hated him uh, and Vespasian hated him, wanted to remove this from uh, everyone's memory, uh, decided to, he, he took down that whole palace drained the lake, and replaced it with what's called the Flavian Amphitheater. We call it the Colosseum because he left standing Nero's Colossus to himself. That is a megalomaniac. That is a a man who is insisting you see him as a god. And because the Romans hated him so much, they blamed him for the fire, and and, and Nero needed a scapegoat. His scapegoat, Christians. This new sect of people. In fact, um, Clement of Rome... A contemporary says, such a vast multitude of Christians experience indignities and torture that are too, hum- too inhumane to describe. He would literally tie them up on, on posts at night and, and light them up so they'd be torches lighting up the city of Rome. The streets would be lined with Christians burning to death. He brought them into the arenas and had them crucified. He threw the wild animals out to them, burned them at the stake. He tortured them. This all began in 64 AD. If this isn't enough, uh, two years after this, he declared holy war on the Jews and he is the one who is responsible for sending the Roman legions upon the Jewish people which ended in the destruction of Jerusalem and the burning down of the temple. And if you look at how long that took him, John describes that in Revelation 5, 13, 5, and 6. Look at verses 5 and 6. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name and his temple and to and to those who live in heaven it was given power to wage war against god's holy people and to conquer them and our history books tell us the amount of time it took him to do this is 42 months So if Nero doesn't fit this description of the beast, I don't know who does. No Caesar before him, with maybe the exception of Domitian, insisted on being a god who is who is to be worshipped by everyone. So that's the first beast. But John also sees a second beast. Look at verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming up out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. Now, what's the role of this beast? Well, John tells us that in verse 15. He says the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship him, who refused to worship the image, to be killed. In other words, the role of the second beast is to get the whole empire to worship the first beast. It's this state sponsored, state enforced worship of Caesar. And if you look at history, what, what, what every empire and emperor need is they need a propaganda machine to manipulate the people they rule. And that's really what the second beast is. It's this widespread, in-your-face propaganda that's meant to deceive you into worshiping the beast. And I want us to see what we have in Revelation 12 and 13. We have a dragon and two beasts. This axis of evil. This trinity of evil. All working in unison towards one end. And that is to get the world to worship the beast. In fact, they are mimicking The Trinity of God, because you have the second beast shining the spotlight on the first beast and saying, World, worship him. And you have the first beast, when he's worshiped, now bringing worship to the dragon. Now, this beast has a mark. Look at verse 16 and 17. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads for this purpose, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. I did a lot of just research on this whole thing this week, and... Um, many scholars think that to participate in the Roman economy, to participate in the, in the marketplace, both the buying and selling, that because each marketplace was devoted to the worship of a particular god because they needed the god's blessing for the prosperity, and because emperor worship is the fastest growing religion, uh, the, the god that, that you would have to kind of revere or, or, or bend the knee to, to participate would have been Caesar. And this is what we do know. We do know that the Roman economy was driven by this whole system of guilds. Guilds were, were unions that had a, a fraternity flavor to them. So really, to participate in the Roman economy, uh, you had to belong to a guild. Now, what archaeologists have uncovered Um, are all these guild sites throughout what was the Roman Empire that include these great halls for for feasting and for meetings and for banquets, and then adjacent to these halls would be a temple uh, to the worship to their god. And what they have found in these temples are inscriptions that show that the leader of these guilds also served as priests in the emperor worship. In other words... You had to become a card-carrying member of these guilds. You had to pay to play. You had to pay homage to Caesar to play or participate in the marketplace. And that mark on one's hand and on one's forehead is a symbol of allegiance. Now here's what I want us to see. Do you see what's at stake for these first Christians? You couldn't have one foot in Christ and another foot in the Roman system. You couldn't waver between the two. You couldn't be a Sunday Christian. You were either all in with Christ, or all out. There was no in between. Now what does this mean for us today? I think it means a whole lot. I mean, we still live in a world at war. A world where this axis of evil, this trinity of of evil still exists. Paul says it in Ephesians. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And and Paul is right. Our battle is against a dragon. And this thing goes all the way back to the beginning. The enmity that exists between the offspring of God's family and the offspring of of Satan. This battle is, is real. And this, this dragon is going to manifest itself in, in flesh and blood realities. It always has. It manifests itself in Pharaohs, in Goliaths, in Philistines, in Assyrians, in Hamans, in Romans, in Ciri, uh, Caesars, genocides, persecutions, abortions, Isis. So here's the question. How do we respond? And here's what I want to say. Christian, it is time for us to be so discerning. Especially this, this, this second beast of, of, of propaganda. The, the propaganda machine is alive and well. And it's not just targeting the minds and the emotions of adults, but it's targeting the minds and, and emotions of our children. It's telling us how we have to think. It's telling us how we have to talk. It's telling us how we have to respond. And I love what it says about the men of Issachar in the Old Testament. It says this. It says the men of Issachar were men who understood the times. We need to do the work of understanding our times. And I'll tell you, I, I, I think this election, can I talk about the election? <laughs> Just no throwing anything, Okay. I think this election has been so revealing. Because when I see these two extreme responses, on the the one hand, all this devastation, and then on the other hand, all this celebration, Both of those extreme responses are people bowing the knee to Caesar. America isn't, and America never was, going to save the world. Jesus Christ is the world's savior. Amen. And isn't that, isn't that an awesome hope? And see, if, if, if any of us find our heart in, in either place, either uh, devastation or, or, or celebration, then we're bowing the knee to Caesar because the government isn't the kingdom of heaven. The church is. And what a time for us to realize our role in the world. Jesus looked at his followers and said, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the earth. You are a city set on a hill. And I wanna seize that. Everything the government promises to be, the church, Needs to be it and then some to the world. I love this this prophecy that is now reality in Isaiah 32. It says, When a king, see, a king will reign in righteousness, that's Messiah. And rulers will rule with justice. That's his followers. As followers of Jesus, we have real authority. And this is what it says next, each one will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, streams of living water in the desert, in the shade of a great rock in a thirsty land. Does our world right now think that about the church? That when the heat gets turned up in my life, I know where to go to find shelter. That when I'm starving and thirsty, I know where to go for a cup of water. That when I don't have a place to live, I know where to go. Because we are not going to be the kingdom of heaven by casting a vote. We are going to be the kingdom of heaven when we love our neighbor, who is like ourselves? Second thing, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of this axis of evil, this trinity of evil, because of how this whole vision starts. God sits on his throne. And when it says, even that the beast was given authority, the beast was given authority, the beast was given authority, who gave it that authority? God. This isn't an an equal duality, two equals battling it out. God and Satan. Satan is God's lackey. God sits on the throne. He reigns and rules. He puts the princes in their place. And it's all moving towards his end. He's orchestrating everything towards the end that he wants to bring it. And the message of Revelation is this, is that Jesus already defeated the axis of evil. It's ball game game over past tense Revelation tell, tells us over and over again it's not that Jesus will overcome he he overcame it doesn't say that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of his of the lord and of his christ it says the kingdom has become the kingdom of of his Lord and his Christ. And yes, there's, there's, there's still a battle that's being waged. But at Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, namely his death, a fatal wound was delivered to the snake, the dragon. And it's all moving towards Christ being the king. Jesus said, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He said, in this world, yes, you will have tribulation. But you take heart because I have overcome the world. That's the primary message of Revelation. He overcame. He wins. In fact, even in Daniel 7, it it starts with these four great beasts that come up out of the sea. And then all of a sudden, they they are no more. And then the next verse you read is one like a son of man, one like a human being, who, 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 following the victory of the four great beasts, ascends through the clouds and goes before the Ancient of the Days. And the Ancient of the Days knights him and says, All authority has been given to you over all peoples forever and ever. That is not past. Tense that happened at the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, and so it may look like evil is sometimes the stronger, it may look like Caesar is in control, it might look like evil is winning, but Jesus won. And what Revelation wants us to know is not just that Jesus won, but it wants us to understand how he won because he didn't win the Caesar way. He didn't win uh, the American way. He didn't win by making it to the top. He won by giving up power. It's victory through defeat. And this is hard for us as Americans. He won by losing Caesar sits on his throne and he says, I win your life for me. Jesus hangs on a cross and says, my life for you. In fact, Jesus took the ultimate Roman symbol of shame and defeat, the cross, and said, that's how I win, through a cross. And as followers of Jesus Christ, that's how we win. We don't win through politics. We don't win by being on top. In fact, really, the only application in, in chapter 13, and it's a powerful one, is in verse 10. John said, This calls for, for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. That word, patient endurance, in the Greek, in the original language, is, is, is hupermene. Um, mene means to remain or to stand, but it has the hyper before it. And, and the New Testament writers are using this word all the time whenever they're talking about persecution. When you are persecuted, they say, mene. hyper Hyperstand. As it comes at you, just stand If any one of you has to go into captivity, into captivity, they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword, they will be will be will be killed. Don't pick up the sword. Don't retaliate. Just hyperstand. Hyper remain. In the face of all it. Be faithful. Justin Martyr, who became one of the great apologists in the second century for the church, living just a Roman life, doing the Roman things, indulging in Roman entertainment, he said, after going to the games enough times and seeing Christians both young and old, being fed to the beasts, hanging on crosses, being burned at the stake. He said, I saw how they did it with such joy. And he said, in the arena, I gave my heart to Christ. That's how Jesus won. And that's how his followers will win. And really, it comes down to what mark do you wear? Do you have the mark on your hand and forehead of Caesar? Deuteronomy tells us our hands and our forehead need to be marked with God's word. And do you know that the Jewish people are the first people in recorded history to die for their faith in God. And the reason why they taught the world how to suffer is because they have been marked by God's word. Their hands are marked. Their foreheads are marked. They've marked it on the door uh, planes of their doors. They've plastered it all over their lives. Has he marked you? Does he have your allegiance? If you lived in the first century, would you be with them? Or would you be all in with Christ? Let's pray. God, thank you for leading our hearts to not just look forward with this book, which it will look forward, but for causing our hearts to look back to a real people who lived in a real world against a real enemy that manifested itself in flesh and blood. that sought to just wipe them out. And God, that makes any problem I have today a first world problem. Let this inspire us to be wholehearted for you. Amen.